All right. Hey, everybody. We're recording live from TRB Annual Meeting 2018 in Washington, D.C. Very excited uh, to be kicking off the new year for the Mobility Podcast with Dr. Austin Brown, who's the Executive Director of the UC Davis Policy Institute for the Energy, the Environment, and the Economy. Um, so I know that Dr. Brown has been doing a lot of work in this area throughout his career. Uh, he recently left D.C., having been involved in the Obama administration, and we are very pleased to have him talk about some of the great work and research that's going on at, at UC Davis, and I know he's giving a congressional briefing, so with that, we'll kick right into that. Maybe you want to talk about that briefing and what you're going to be talking, what message you're going to be taking to the Hill. Sure. Um, first, first, thanks for having me. I think it's been great seeing you guys start this podcast up. It was a huge gap, and we need more smart people talking about mobility, so really, really pleased to be here today. Um, one of the topics I've been spending a lot of time on uh, since joining UC Davis uh, that we're going to be updating the Hill on later today is what we call the three revolutions in transportation. And those three revolutions we're talking about are uh, automation, sharing, and electrification of transportation. So you guys have talked a lot about automation on this podcast, it's a huge new topic in mobility. We're also really worried about the questions of will those new automated vehicles be shared and will they be electrified? Uh, the research I've done it in D.C. and then my colleagues at UC Davis have really uh, built out a lot of this understanding shows us that the impacts and the benefits from automation are the, are the greatest, they have the best uh, societal impacts when it's combined with sharing and automation. So when we don't just automate vehicles that people own personally, when they're actually vehicles that are shared and electrified, that's when you can actually address all of the different challenges of the transportation system uh, at the same time. Uh, our research put up a bunch of warning flags that says, if you just drop automated vehicles into the system as it is now, um, some problems may get better. You may improve safety very dramatically, but you have uh, real risks of unintended consequences, especially in topics like congestion, where you might have a dramatic increase in VMT and vehicle miles traveled. Uh, it, it, you could challenge our already challenged system in terms of equity. You might have a greater divide between the transportation haves and have-nots, if you're not careful. And you might adversely impact pollution, both local pollution and uh, climate pollution, with all these additional VMT if you're not also electrifying these vehicles and getting uh, more people into the same number of cars on the road. Um, so that program, the Three Revolutions program, has two sides. One is a research side, helping to further elaborate how we're going to use these vehicles, what people are looking for from automation, uh, what will affect how that how they evolve in the, in the transportation system, and then a policy side that's really the one that I'm working more on, uh, which is clarifying the policy implications. What does this research tell us about what kind of policy? we need at the federal, the state, and the local level, and then how can we support that policy process? How can we get this research into a form that uh, is useful for the policy community? That's, that's really exciting. And I, one thing I'm very curious about, and it's something that I think is going on within the cities that I work with and here at the federal government, is being at UC Davis, is there any, how, how are you coordinating all the different departments? Because as you peel the layers of this, you talked about congestion pricing, you talk about the environment, you talked about electrification. It's not just about automation. I think we talked about it's a great opportunity to re revolutionize transportation right now, but how do we get policies in place uh, to get it right? So I think we'll talk about that, but I'm curious about, are, are you seeing coordination in the academic sector? And are grad students excited about this, and what do they think? Yeah, grad students are unbelievably excited about this. <laughs> we get, uh, we, we've seen so many uh, really creative students getting involved, and I think that's gonna help close the gap, because as I think you're implying, we have a huge gap between what we know and what we need to know. 
And there is so much research out there to be done. Uh, I think this is an area that's so fertile for, uh, for new understanding. Um, and we are trying to build basically better links between the research and the policy process. So making sure that cities that are saying, what is this going to mean for us? What should we do about it? How can we get ready? Have access to the kind of research that they need to inform that. Um, cities are really uh, interested in a ton of local questions. So they want to know, how do I avoid having a bunch of empty miles driving around? We already see deadheading, or, you know, um, which is a problem with the transportation network companies like Uber and Lyft, where these vehicles are being driven around with only the, the operator and not any passengers. Imagine that with a vehicle that doesn't have anybody in it at all, which is just trolling around looking for the, uh, the, next, the next fare. Mm. They're interested in what they should do about their curb space. Right now, curb space is regulated in terms of parking, but for pickups and drop-offs and freight, it can be a huge issue in terms of causing local congestion problems, causing safety hazards. So how do they manage their curb space for these new technologies? You heard it here first. Well, maybe not, maybe not for the first time, but curb space is the thing of 2018. Um, and well, it's going to be sexy again. What did you call it, the year of the curb? It's the was year that, of the curb. Yeah, okay, I love it. But uh, and I, I think that's one of the things. It's like you're helping to rethink a lot of these things that have sort of been established for a long time. And a lot of folks who, well, I've met some academics um, who are a little bit older, and I met one who said that he has been working on AVs for 45 years, and so that he knew, you know, way more than everyone else. And like, but what was important to understand is that a lot of these things take a rethinking and stepping away from what we've known before. Um, and on that, you, you said you, when you're communicating with cities, um, first of all, it seems like sometimes they don't have sort of a, a method of finding the information that they need. Um, so how do you sort of close that information gap, number one? Number two, how do you really present those solutions in a way that uh, can help them to accomplish them? Yeah, I think those are, those are great questions, and a lot of this is, is really new, and so mm -hmm. we're, we're trying to actively uh, evaluate those questions. I think the one guiding principle we have is that cities always learn much better from each other than they do from some researcher who just shows up and says, this is what you should do. Right. So <laughs> probably the most impactful discussions we've had are where you have multiple representatives from similar positions from cities that see some sort of... Um, uh, some sort of shared goals uh, mm -hmm. in their work and then they can say well this is how we tried it and this is how we tried it and then sort of learn their way to the middle of, of, of what works the best right. and then constantly sort of making sure that research is available to understand okay what this was actually going to mean how do you evaluate pilot programs so they know quantitatively did this work and what problems did it cause um but really not viewing research as just a sort of one-way process where you just right. show up with the results. Much more of a collaborative, <laughs> ongoing discussion. Well, and I think, right. I love that you say that because I think you do see that a lot in cities that are all kind of banding together because one of the, you know, one issue that you always do have is that, yes, that policy or, you know, the when you're doing it from an academic or research standpoint um, is just that academic. And I have to deal with very real realities of politics and bureaucracy and process. And so I think it is really essential. And I think that, uh, you know, the importance of not just researching this stuff, but then, you know, adding that policy angle to it and working with the cities because they have, you know, it's not a matter of, oh, if we just add bike lanes, you know, it's, right. it's kind of like, how do you, how do you increase cycling? Well, you add bike lanes. It's like, Yes, but if you then read the local, you know, if you watch the local news and read the local news coverage, it's it's a, or go to an ANC meeting here in DC, which is the kind of hyper local um, community input thing. It's a it's a lot harder than that, and so having uh, case studies and and stuff to to back, you know to back up those policies, but also helping them going from you know a very groundbreaking study to an actual groundbreaking. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think that that's that's right. That also makes me think of one area that I think is particularly underappreciated here, and that's the intersection with these three revolutions with public transit. And when you talk to transit officials at the city or the regional level, mm-hmm. some of them think that uh, that automation is going to be great for transit. It's going to help them solve their first and last mile problem. Some of them think it's going to take away all of their transit riders because people will just be able to take a cheap trip otherwise. And some of them think that automation and TNCs are going to become transit. And some of them start sweating when they think about labor unions. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> yeah. And I think you know one one thing um, that I'm I'm really curious about. And I heard you say it. You know, we were kind of doing our pre-talk is how do we balance all this? And so I, I think to Pete's point, to all our points, is a lot of cities are paralyzed right now. They don't know what to do. And then when you get them into a room, they're sharing ideas, but they don't necessarily have the resources to then and, and catch up with the private sector. So how, you know, what, what are your tips that you, when you get these cities in the room, are you telling them, how do we get the policies right? How can they get their voices heard on the Hill to try and have a more collaborative approach and, and deal with these issues all at once as opposed to piecemeal? Because the technology is not waiting. I mean, that's the sense I'm getting. Yeah, so I think on, on the political side, there's much wiser people than I am for how they can get their voice heard. What, what I think we need to be thinking the most about right now is actually way upstream of that. We haven't even really asked the question of what do we want to get out of these technologies. Mm-hmm. Yep. We need to first say, this is what we want, this is actually what we demand that these technologies accomplish, and if they don't help us solve these problems, then we're going to figure out a way to make them do so. Um, we had, for example, the Senate put out a very useful set of bipartisan policy principles in the lead up to the, uh, the bills that are currently moving through the Congress. Mm-hmm. But it completely left out topics like equity and congestion and pollution. Yep. And you can't just ask it to, to address safety, although that's obviously critical. Mm-hmm. You have to demand that it do more, or at least that it not make those problems worse. Right. So I think for cities especially, they need to go down and say, this is what we know we want these technologies to accomplish, and then work with companies to say, Show us how your pilots, show us how these projects and these technologies are actually addressing each of these topics. Build that into the process. Don't just say, go deploy like crazy, and then we'll check in 10 years later right. and see and see what we did uh, to, to all of these different uh, key priorities for cities. Well, I love that approach, too, because one of the things is everyone gets so excited about the technology. But the thing is, if the technology arrives, then you have it and you're already there. But if you have a plan for how you're going to use it, then you have a way to actually make sure it's being implemented the way that you want to. Um, because this is what happened with cars. I mean, it's what happened with TNCs. Pete and I were discussing this uh, yesterday. Um, so you have to be able to plan in advance for what's going to happen to your city when you have these new technologies coming in. Well, and, and I think that uh, going off that point, there's no reason that you have to wait and that these policies are specific only to autonomous vehicles. Um, I think TNCs from a, you know, when we talk curb, uh, curb access and pricing and, and pick up and drop off areas and efficiencies there, uh, general pricing of, you know, how do you, it, it's the same issue of we need, how do we, you know, as you said, how do we price so that you can minimize deadhead miles, but also, you know, the ghost autonomous vehicle miles. Um, I think that these TNCs and, and just the general vehicles in general now offer a, you know, a test range or a test uh, case to start working on the policies that are going to be not only impacting autonomous vehicles down the road, but also are providing a more passenger focused, electrified, shared. You know, these are all topics that we should be addressing now, anyways. Even if AVs, you know, it just they decide actually we, you know, we couldn't get it. I think that's a fantastic point, and we have a couple concrete examples there, and maybe even a few missed opportunities. So right now, uh, the TNCs uh, each have sort of a single occupant where you get your own vehicle to ride in versus a shared mode, like a, like a Lyft line or an Uber pool. And cities absolutely could set the 
rules and pricing of these different services to encourage the shared mode. Um, but we just recently saw Chicago set a price structure for their uh, TNC regulation that didn't account for whether it was a shared or a non-shared ride. And they have the opportunity to say, we actually benefit from shared rides. Therefore, we want to set up a cost structure that encourages more ride sharing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think missed that opportunity so far. It's, not, it's obviously not over. And there but, you're talking about um, the city approving a tax you know, a or a, a per trip. A tax or a fee on a TNC ride to then subsidize public transit. To subsidize public transit or to just make sure that they're priced for the different city services that are being provided for the the road maintenance. They're absolutely right that these um, services create a cost for the city that they need to reflect. Um, But getting that price right, as you're setting it, you want to encourage the most publicly beneficial use of those services. So you want to figure out how can we actually set this price structure to match what the impacts are on people in terms of pollution and equity, and actually then use that revenue for for public service. That's very exciting. So I think this is a great introduction to everything you're working on. Uh, Before we sign off, uh, we'd love to hear two or three trends that you're watching for 2018. And then maybe later this year, we'll come out to Davis and check in with you to see how much of those are coming to fruition. <laughs> that, that'd be great. Uh, I, I always hate doing predictions on mic because it means I might be held accountable for how wrong I'm about to be. It's DC, um, though, though. Yeah. Yeah. Accountability. We're just, all right. Just talk. We're all geniuses. We're yeah. all geniuses, right? Just right. say we're fake news afterwards. It'll be fine. <laughs> there you go. Uh, just so, deny it. So let, let me start with a trend that I want to see. Um, I don't. This is maybe not a prediction, but this is the one I'm really hoping for. Uh, I really want to see the first real-world data on energy implications from a real-world uh, uh, implementation of automated vehicles. Mm-hmm. So I say real-world because we have all of this research that says, depending on how you implement it, automated vehicles could either save a bunch of energy and reduce emissions or increase energy <coughs> use and emissions. Mm-hmm. And now we need to actually see that on the, on the real road. We want to see from these pilot demonstrations what miles per gallon do these vehicles get. We know that should be in theory. We want to actually see that data. Um, that's going to be mm-hmm. hugely Im- important for the planning going forward. I say want to see because I haven't seen any announcements of any commitments to actually produce or collect that data. So just a huge gap so far. Um, I think in terms of what we will see, we're going to start seeing uh, real results from the first uh, level four fleets. So this is now being demonstrated with drivers out there. Level four of automation for those who aren't as versed in the SAE levels um, is where you have uh, end-to-end automation where the driver not needing to do any con- any control of a human not needing to do any control of the vehicle but only in s- uh, some circumstances so limited geography limited weather conditions and that's what we're really starting to see is the early implementation and, and for those following the news that's kind of the announcement with Waymo level 4 not getting anybody in the driver's seat yeah so we're going to learn a lot about well, how do people feel about this technology are they happy to ride in it are they confused how do people outside the vehicle interact with it I know you talked about this a lot in the last podcast what are people actually going to do when they see these vehicles driving around. Right. Um, now is really when the, when the rubber's going to hit the road on, on some of those. So to speak. Yeah, so to speak. <laughs> and then uh, we're also going to see, I think, much, much more on transit. We've seen a lot of agencies start some pilots saying we're going to try to handle our uh, sort of low-density areas with uh, alliances with TNCs. I think that's incredibly exciting, and we should start to see how well those are working. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll probably see bigger and bigger transit agencies try to bring in some of these technologies, either some automation and fixed route schedules, um, as well as using these shared models to try to 
provide um, expensive uh, services like paratransit that have been really tra- challenging for transit agencies to manage. Mm-hmm. Um, Where can people find more information on uh, not only the three revolutions, but your work, and where can they find you on Twitter? Great. So uh, for the three revolutions, you can go to 3rev, that's the, the, the uh, number 3rev.ucdavis.edu, uh, uh, or just Google three revolutions Davis. That's probably the easiest way to find things. Um, I'm at policyinstitute.ucdavis.edu, uh, and one of my New Year's resolutions is to get better at actually tweeting, but you can find me on Twitter uh, at Doc Energy. that's D-O-K-E-N-E-R-G-Y, Doc with a K, Energy uh, on, on Twitter. Awesome. So thank you, Doc Brown. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, and we look forward to hearing about all the great work you're going to continue throughout the year. Great. Thanks a lot for having me.